Hello everyone, welcome to my second episode and it's about first century lifestyle of Palestine and I'm using the word Palestine, nothing political here, just to use historical correct figures and we're going to talk about the lifestyle of Jews living in Palestine in the first century during Jesus' time. But, but let me go back and tell you that I am doing this podcast because I'm going through a journey with you uh, for 10 days, virtual journey through the land of Israel, and we will trace the life of Jesus. From his birth in Bethlehem, uh, we're going to learn about his childhood in Nazareth, and Nazareth was his first hometown, and we're going to explore his second hometown, which was Galilee, and especially he loved to be in Capernaum. That was his second hometown. And then we're going to continue learning about Jerusalem, and especially his third hometown, which was Bethany, where he loved to go and meet Mary and Martha every time he's in Jerusalem. And, and in this uh, particular session or podcast, we're going to have uh, more attention to the first century culture, custom, context in which Jesus lived. My goal is a better understanding of Jesus' ministry and a better application of his teachings for us today. So I'm going to relate historical <clears throat> understandings with modern understanding today. I'm going to relate the Eastern way of thinking to the modern days Western way of thinking. I'm gifted in teaching the Bible and showing the reality of Scripture, not only the first century, but applied to the 21st century. But first of all, we're going to learn about the first century way of life. It's so much important to understand the daily life of the inhabitants of Palestine in the biblical times. And just to let you know, it was based mostly on agriculture. The land was their most important economic asset and the main principal source of income. And the land of Palestine is very simple in the first century. I can say it was uh, very poor. By the way, the word poor in this part of the world doesn't mean that you are not rich, that you are not very, very poor and you can't live. The word poor in the first century mindset, it's simple. You can live but you don't need to own everything in the world. But you can have a simple life and being content. So being poor in your mindset is someone that can't live, he's a beggar, he can't afford living. No, poor is very simple and content in his life. Like Jesus' family was very simple and content. And even if there is war here and during the coronavirus nowadays in Israel, we are used to that because we're used to wars so we are not affected or panicking about it but we're having a simple life which we is part of our culture so the land in the first century was very simple and the, especially the villages and you only know your wine press you only know your area your olive press and and you are either farmer or a constructor or a carpenter and and you're aware only of your small village and villages in the first century was mostly like 300 400 at most people like uh, Bethlehem was like at most 400 people Nazareth was bigger maybe 450 at most 500 people and uh, these are small villages take off your mind of speaking about thousands or millions of inhabitants so everyone knows each other's, everyone knows their surroundings. And, and everyone just like 
know what to do each day and it was a big thing if they go up to Jerusalem it's a big festival by the way and they have to go every Jew in the first century have to go up to Jerusalem three times during Passover feast and during Sukkot you know what is Sukkot the feast of the tabernacles and during the Pentecost the Pentecost is the receiving of Moses of Torah on Mount Sinai. And all of these three festivals were celebrated in Jerusalem and the temple. But if you live in a village, you might not be able to afford to go all the way up to Jerusalem because of taxes. First, you're a farmer. You're very simple. And you just work hard all the year just to collect money in order to pay taxes on the way. Because there's border taxes on the way. And there is like more than seven kind of taxes the Roman Empire imposed on you. So you are a little bit like in distress and just you're a little bit like working hard and hard and hard and under occupation and you're feeling your rights are taken away from you. This is how people felt in the first century during the time of Jesus and also Jesus' family. So Jesus would not be able to come every, every year three times. And not only that, you have to go and pay even sacrifices in the temple and, and even to pay taxes in the temple for buying the sacrifices. So it's not easy to come during these three times a year. But we know that Jesus made it and we can't know if he, made, he was able to do it. I don't think so. He was able to do it every year three times because we say and we read from scripture that uh, Joseph, when he came, he just had dove sacrifices for his son and even he didn't own a donkey actually if he owned a donkey he will sell the donkey and make a better sacrifice a lamb sacrifice but anyway and the land is so much important for people in the first century their land because their land is their produce their land is their income so they connected to the land but for westerners they do not appreciate the value of the land for example you can move your life from one state to another state and you can completely change your lifestyle and you can choose to do that but in the first century and in the Middle East the land is everything for us it is like our identity the land is connected to the people and the people is connected to the land and the first century the richest people who are the people who owned most of the land and until today in the land, if you own a lot of land, well, you are considered to be one of the richest people. Now, first century, the kings, the Caesars, the Romans, the Roman Empire, imagine how much land they owned. And uh, the Caesar was so, so rich because he owned a lot of land. And then the high priest owned also some plots of land. And they were able to buy pieces of land because of their income from the temple taxes and then after that in the first century we come to the middle class citizens who own small plots of land and like some olive presses and some of them rented also the olive presses and uh, with a small charge of money for like uh, from the owner of the olive press so people who owned no land are the majority of the citizens in the first century and there were much much more the majority of the people who worked the land lived in it but gave all the products to the owners eh, i can say like jesus family and then we have after that the slaves the slaves did not own any rights or anything 
thus they followed the orders of their masters. And the poor and the slaves were the engine that turned the wheels of the economy in the first century world. Now today in the land of Israel the situation is completely different. Today in an agricultural society a land is inherited property and it's inherited from the parents and then the grandfathers and it's like a repeated division of that heritage breaks it into pieces and after a few generations it's no longer sufficient to support any family so farmers today in the land of israel will not do good income because of the division of the lands by their families and the reader who does not know the culture and the customs and the context of the bible reads stories in, to be flat and this is why I'm doing these episodes, because the one who knows more about uh, farming in the first century or how the land was divided in the first century and the income of the families in the first century, he will understand the story in a deeper way, in a different layers, much longer than the number of words it contains, because as I mentioned, Hebrew is not only in words, it's in images and it's in diagrams and it's uh, pictures and it's in uh, much more deeper to understand the words of the bible to understand the culture background and it's important to understand also the families who lived in the first century and the stories are so much important the bible is full of stories about the land stories about uh, people property and their homes and we have so many stories from the Bible and it's important to understand all these stories. But what I'm going to do now is something different. I will relate stories for you from the Bible of the first century and relate it for things from today. And I'll give you one example. Like social media today, stories, it's all about social media. And Instagram is so much successful instagram why do you think instagram is so much successful today because everyone <laughs> want to know about others people and want to know their stories and want to see their pictures so stories are so much important today because we are made to be relational we are made because we want to know more about each others and we want to learn from each others because we are human beings we are much more connected with each other so if we we are like sometimes very 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 like curious to know about other people's lives and how they're living so that is so much important in the middle eastern culture and today this is what the west lacking lacking the communities lacking the social connections between humans so these instagram stories connect people together and this is why it's very successful let me explain more how the story started in the ancient world, in the Eastern way of thinking, and the wisdom of the East related to the stories and the parables. And, and Jesus was the best, by the way, storyteller ever in history. And stories like speaks about people and their lives. But let me start with this, before stories on social media. Where did you hear and connect with people about their stories? The TV right before the invention of all these like iphones the tv i remember my dad was one of the few people to bring the black and white tv to our home 
And all the neighbors at that time came and gathered in our house each evening for a month to watch the stories and news what is happening in the world. I told him my dad was a policeman and there were some reductions for policemen who lives here in the land that they can buy things less expensive like everything for the home. Anyway, too much information, but but all the families and our neighbors, it was like busy every, every night, everyone watching the TV. Why? Because they need to learn about stories, all right? They need, they need to know more about what's happening in the world. And before the TV was the invention of the radio, okay? I know maybe some of you, the listeners, remember these days. And I remember my grandfather telling me when first the radio came out, and he was from a small village in West Bank, my grandfather from Ramallah, and he told me every evening all the elders, men from the villages, after being farmers, after working in their olive trees and uh, their vineyards, they gathered in the evening together around the radio and to hear the stories of what's happening in the world. And they drink uh, like special herbal tea, and they talk about the events after they hear them in the radio. Let us go even more back. Before the radio, we had books, newspapers, and people would gather in libraries to read what is happening in the news. And if you go before that, we go back to the time of Jesus, even before any writings, they gathered around bonfires in the first century or down in the courtyard of their houses to discuss what is happening and to learn about the stories of their neighbors. And the stories were carried from word to mouth. So stories are powerful because it is how people gather together as a community to communicate and deliver information about each others. We call these stories parables in this part of the world. A story or a parable aims for a teaching point, a teaching method to get you an answer for a question you have in your mind. But we need to put the stories or parables in the right culture and custom and context in the same time of history to understand the point of the parable. It's from one place to another. What food did they eat during traveling? What animals did they use? We know from the Bible, donkeys, horses, camels, sheep, goats, and a lot on food too when they travel from one place to another. Donkeys, by the way, were the most important in Jesus' time for traveling. Also sheep and goats. Donkeys carried tents for shelter at night, sleeping mats of straws, sacks of wheat, dates, and olive oil for food, few clay pots for cooking. Goat's skin is so much important. Water jugs, which they can refill. The importance of the goats, hair, tents, and goat milk is so much big in the Bible. We know about the land of milk and honey. And you know what milk the Bible speaks about? The goat milk, all right? What honey? The date honey. So anyway, goats is so much important. And when you travel, you go with the pace of the goats too, as uh, traveling from one location to another location. You have to understand no cars like today, no means of modern transportation time, no planes traveling all over, but life was very slow, not like today. I can tell you, life like was what you, of coronavirus today, what's happening? Everyone is in his home. 
and everyone is with his family connected back to his identity and to the core needs of life that was life in the first century they needed food food was so much important is number one important for each family in the first century and the community to connect together and the third thing important is to learn about the stories of the families so life was very slow and simple like what we are passing today so one plowed his fields another led his sheep to pasture using stakes and stones to drive away the wolves who hauled for a piece of meat for their puppies another nursed his son throughout the night still another rose of like to dig a pit in which to bury his wife who had passed away in short while ago and this is like cultural thing and there are so many similar things what's happening today related to the first century culture the inner garment clothes was so much important uh, it was made of linen cotton or sometimes soft wool but most jews will have soft wool because they can't afford to buy linen only romans or emperors buy linen remember uh, uh, Herod Antipas, when he saw Jesus, he put a, a linen covering on his shoulders, mocking him. Like you saying, you're a king. This is what the king dressed in linen. But Jesus never owned anything in his life. Even he did not own his own clothes. They bled a lot for his clothes. And uh, there's also inner tunics and made of camel hair sometimes. And these garments were made without sleeves and reached only to the knees. Uh, and a man wearing only this inner garment was said like to be naked all right you can read that in first samuel 19 24 you can read that in isaiah 22 and 4 you can read the verses later nothing at all was worn underneath the inner garment except by the essene men who wore clothes fitting uh, all the way because they were much more strict anyway also uh, they had some kind of band of clothes cord or a leather it's like a belt but it's not a belt that could be loosened or tightened it was worn around the inner and the outer garment it's used prevented the flowing robes often the long ones from interfering with the movement and easier to walk around the biblical expression to grit up the loins meant to put on the belt by the way thus freeing the lower legs to permit work and easy walking that this expression was ready for a person was ready for service it's largely equivalent to the modern expression roll up your sleeves and be ready we can speak about the outer tunic also called a mantle or robe was worn over the inner tunic it consists of square stripped of clothes with a hole for the head sometimes it had sleeves and sometimes was more like a poncho not a sleeve like sleeveless with the area of the arms cut back. It was worn as a protective covering. People did not go out in public without some sort of outer tunic. We call it, the Jewish men call it the tassels. You call it in your language the tassels. In Hebrew called tzitzit or tzitziot, attached to the corners of the mantles, reminding them of the constant presence of the Lord's commandments. Whenever they look at it, they remember to read Torah. And... You have to know that the outer tunic was large and flowing. It was usually drawn in with a belt. The outer belt was often decorated with broderie or even precious stones.
A bag or a purse was often attached to the belt, especially for the women, and fastened with a buckle. And while most Jewish men and women wore long ankle-length tunics, short knee-length tunics were worn by slaves, soldiers, and those engaging in work that required more mobility. In cooler weather, a cloak might be worn on top of these tunics. Clocks could be designed either with sleeves or without sleeves. More again speak about sandals. Were worn on the feet. Cheap leather, of course. Jesus, you have to understand, worn sandals with cheap leather. And because they walk around from one place to another place and, and uh, a lot of mud, there's a lot of debris, so they have to wash their legs all the time. Especially they had wooden soles and were fastened with straps of leather. So they need to clean their and wash their legs from every every time they arrive to a place or a home or a synagogue. So that was the custom at that time. By the way, they did not wear sandals inside the houses. They removed them upon entering the house and washed their feet. I like that when I go to visit uh, friends or pastors in the States and enter their houses, I just like to take off my shoes. They think this is something modern. <laughs> this is not modern at all. We used to do this earlier in history. And... Uh, just to clean our legs and wash our legs. In modern times, it's because of the new rugs. They don't want them to be like filthy and dirty, which we can understand. But that's an old, old custom. Anyway, TMI, too much information. But in terms of basics, men and women dressed much alike. However, there were clearly differences because scriptures says like, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put a woman's clothing for however does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's mentioned in Deuteronomy 22, chapter 22, verse 5. Of course, that applied for the Jews who lived in the first century. This is why I'm mentioning that. Because all the Jews who lived, most of the Jews were religious in the first century in the land of Palestine. So they followed Torah and they want to be pious Jews. And probably this happened with, with Jesus and his family and people living in Nazareth, in Galilee, and Jerusalem. However, however, the outer garment was for women was much more longer and it largely covered the feet. We can read that in Isaiah 47, chapter 47, verse 2, and Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 2. And the outer garment for women was like uh, with a belt similar to that used by men, but it was ornamentated differently and usually more elaborate way and much more decorative for a woman for their like lifestyle and in some regions women's outer garments were made of different materials and with different patterns that those worn by men let us talk about the veil in the first century there's a debate as to how widespread the wearing of the veil was for jewish women in jesus time and it is certain that they wore them in the synagogues and at the temple for respect. We can read that from 1 Corinthians 11.15. It's also quite certain that unmarried women wore them too. However, it is less evident that Jewish women wore them all the time, especially at their homes. Some of them didn't even wear them in public. It would seem that Jewish women in uh, Judea, in Palestine, Rome, first century, like uh, speaking about the area in Jerusalem, Jericho and Bethlehem, like uh, war hairnets and examples of which have been discovered at sites such as Masada. 
So perhaps women did not wear a veil at all times, as is now the custom. In the Middle East today is different uh, because it's a Muslim country. Women like uh, wear veils and that's a sign of pious and respect and more than I think in the first century Jewish uh, Palestine. Other sources speak of the head covering being typical for both men and women and describe it as length of clothes around the shoulders that could be pulled over the head and tied at the forehead, falling over the shoulders. Perhaps the veil or head covering was something that was used strategically, such as when one needed protection from the sun or wished to pray. And this is also for men, like in the desert, we can see that, to protect themselves from the sand and the sun, but in Judaism, is to feel that there is something above them. They cover their head to humble themselves and pray, and to feel there is another bigger power on top of them, which is God, to respect him. And let me speak more about jewelry in the first century. And the Bible also, if you go back even more earlier than the first century from the Old Testament, when Abraham's servants presented earrings and bracelets to Rebekah. Remember that story, Genesis 24, 22. Also, Jeremiah also observed, Can a maid forget her ornaments? Isaiah 3, 16 to 23, you can read it also, features a detailed description of the ornaments woman to be fashionable at the Old Testament time. As a general rule, Hebrew women wore bracelets and earrings. Less frequently, they might have like nose jewels or, or like what they, in the Western societies they do today, piercing in their ears, in their nose, or any place in their bodies. That was very rare. But it happened, but it was very rare, like uh, not like tattoo culture or piercing culture. Anyway, bracelets were usually made of precious materials such as gold and were typically worn around the wrist. However, real women often wore them above the elbow. Most bracelets were one solid piece and were slipped over the wrist. More rarely, two pieces were fastened together and were open and closed at a hinge made of gold if you have the income like you're an emperor or princess and made of also a lot of also different kinds of materials like copper or like iron when you are less important and don't own a lot of money and earrings among the jewish people only women wear earrings you can read that in judges 8 24 they were less common long ago than they are today as i mentioned uh, Scripture also suggests that they were round or hoop-like. However, the law prohibited all, all mutilation of the body, so neither ears nor nose could be pierced to hold such ornaments. Thus, earrings were clipped on or worn around the ear with a small chain. And let me explain more about it. Like, although some evidences exist of Jewish women wearing small jewels on or about the nose, there is little evidence that the wearing the nose rings was widespread. The practice was more common farther, uh, like uh, in Assyria or Persia, more to the east of these piercings, not in, in the area of Palestine. And by the way, rings were, not, were, on, were worn not only on the fingers, but also on the toes. Let's speak about cosmetics and perfumes. Generally, Jewish women looked at cosmetics such as painting the eyes, okay, like what we read in Jeremiah 
chapter 4 verse 30 and chapter 23 verse 40. There is some evidence that Jewish women dyed the nails of their fingers and toes also with henna. I don't know what if you know what is henna. Henna is a material used like for decoration, especially for weddings for a woman to make her much more beautiful. This is a Middle Eastern thing. Now, perfumes. Jewish women use perfume in much the same manner as today. Common sources of perfume in biblical times were frankincense and mirth, uh, all kind of nard, cinnamon, saffron. So that is something like throughout history did not change. Hairstyle. Most Jewish women wear their hair long and braided. You know, we have a lot of uh, mention in the Talmud about Jewish women also use combs and hairpins. It would seem that they generally like uh, where women much more elaborate hairstyles of the Greek and other women in their culture. And the family is the highest body of the society. You have to understand. Let me like uh, gather all why I'm mentioning this because all of these details of the first century because I want to tell you that the family is the highest body of society. The families are all starts in the families in the from all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation speak about families from the first chapter to the last chapter because it's all about relationship and it's all important social organization because all starts at home in a Jewish family. It does not start in the church. Do not misunderstand me. The church is very important, but it starts at home because if you have a strong foundation at home, you're going to have a strong foundation in your family. Then if you have a healthy family, you're going to have a healthy church. Whenever you have a healthy church, you're going to have a healthy society. Then you're going to have a healthy community. Then you're going to have a healthy government. So all starts in homes. And I'm sharing with you about the stories of the first, like, uh, stories of the Bible. Like, uh, it's all about families, right? Sheep and shepherds, farmers who lived in Nazareth, important family bonds and family relationship. And the family is the most important structure or group of biblical times. And the family is about you and me and you can't delete your family from your life and you can't delete any family member that you do not even like or desire or you do not accept okay we have to humble ourselves because families are part of us so my advice like connect with your families connect with your i know that people do not like to talk with each other's uh, much especially young kids with their f families but this is the time of history that coronavirus taught us how to connect with our families like how you know imagine i talk to my mom every day every single day i check about her how she's doing how is she feeling because it's so much important to to have the blessings of the family and the parents even if your sons do not want to talk with you just connect with them and talk with them this is the opportunity because the family is so much a functional unit and it's important uh, to establish stability and order in life and the leader of the family is always the man and not the woman but the man with the help of the woman and also why families are important in the first century because the families are like the tribes 
you need the community you need the tribe you need children around you just to be functional just to make things happen and help so is helping each others and be as uh, like helping everyone's needs and that is the important thing in the first century way of life uh, even extended families relationships uh, responsibilities each one to each other and it's so much important to have uh, a healthy a healthy family and like in general person was born grew up married spent his entire life within his family group and he contributed to the group strength and the group contributed to him it's not about me it's not about you it's not about the individual it's all about the community and by the way in the first century we know a lot that uh, people did not live more than 45 years like uh, Today is different. Today, improvement of diets, living conditions, hygiene, sani sanitation, medical services to the entire population. According to studies, men lived with maximum age 35 on average, while women lived 30, 30 years. And that the top is 45 years old. Like we're saying today is like if you reach 45 today is like 100. OK, and. And. Uh, the average woman in the first century lived shorter time than the man because of uh, death in childbirth and uh, a lot a lot of complications when giving birth uh, surveys say out of five babies born in the first century only two might survive and uh, that is very very low i'm going to talk more about girls married at young age in the first century age nine or ten and her only existence in life is to have children okay for her husband like uh, to have more kids and for them to form uh, a community together and uh, it's so much important so much important and the bible do not marry uh, give us a record of the marriage ages of miriam and joseph but we may assume that they were between 10 and 12 years old because this was common for Mary. That was a common practice uh, to their lifestyle in the first century. And because women reach uh, the age of uh, uh, like uh, maturity around uh, uh, age 14. So the woman's situation in the Bible was like uh, a traditional household uh, society and with a man superior over the intelligence of the woman simply because he was born as a man and it was a period when a woman was blessed if she had sons and more sons than daughters because uh, men were much more like uh, functional and they are considered to be much more male figures that they just are the ones who can bring income they can do all the work and that was the first century way of life and uh, a woman was given to her husband through one of three customs payment through the bride price a legal contract and or a sexual intercourse so the contract was like a document or any other type of legal obligation during the biblical times this must have been like oral that the father of the bride gave to the father of the groom we're going to speak more in later episodes about specific marriages how it took place in the first century 
And it's all about the father. He promised to give his daughter in marriage to the groom. And uh, there's a lot of arranged marriages even till today in our culture, very similar to the first century culture, which we're going to speak more about. Okay. And if a woman was a widow and after she, have, she had children and became a widow, she had to fulfill her obligation towards the family that had paid her bride price and earned the food she ate. So if she were a young woman who could still bear children, one of the first husbands remained in their home. But because their mother and mother remained in the same household, the connections between them was preserved. Usually if a woman got to be a widow, the brother of her husband will take her and protect her and marry her. And that will cause a lot of the dramas and issues, but was that was the culture of the first century. And the woman have nothing to say. She have to listen to the culture. But if the woman had no children, that would be hard. That would be hard. And not the brother will take her in not all the circumstances. But if she had children just to protect the family and the children, and so the woman i can tell you the widow remained like a prisoner in her husband's family and that was very tough all of because it shall be that the first born the first born and shall succeed to the name of his the, brother his dead brother so that was his name not to be battled out from uh, the inheritance in order also also another good thing about it is the for his memory and his rights to be preserved because the son would inherit all the land or from his like uh, the father that died so his brother is still committed for the property and continue the chain that had been broken as if there was uh, like his natural son so so it's important for the family to be connected even even for a widow to be connected with her brother's family and slaves have always occupied the lowest position in society and family slaves were considered to be part of the household property and to be a slave in the first century is like uh, really really very hard was on was an object that could be bought and sold the children of slaves belong to the masters of the household and you know a lot about slavery and even we hear about a lot of slavery in modern times too today anyway that i gave you just a, a general general introduction of details what to expect for the next 10 days journey so this is only like a taste of what you're going to receive each uh, episode, each day touring with me. So again, the idea is to bring you through a virtual tour of 10 days in the land of Israel and to speak about the culture, the custom and the context of scripture and related till today. Thank you so much for your patience. So if you like. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with other people and friends. And when you subscribe, immediately you receive the new podcast next. I'm trying for every week to do one podcast and put it online. 
And thank you so much for your patience. And if you have any questions or anything or any comments, you can send me an email or connect with me. And the details are written in the podcast. Have a blessed week. Thank you. Bye-bye.